Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, the in-depth podcast for people working in the charity sector or more broadly to achieve social impact or social change. Please do follow us on your podcast player and Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm your host, Alex Blake. When I'm not podcasting, I work as a consultant helping charities to increase their income and impact. Today, I'm joined by Nick Temple, CEO of the Social Investment Business. So if you're interested in social investment for your charity or social enterprise, or if you're just looking for some insight into the current social investment market, as I was, and this episode is for you. Nick has been CEO of the social investment business since 2018 and has previously been Deputy CEO at Social Enterprise UK and Director of Policy and Comms at the School for Social Entrepreneurs. Nick's on the board of Social Value UK, the UK National Advisory Board for Impact Investing, Charity Bank's Social Sector Advisory Panel, Big Issue Invest Investment Committee and the Diversity Forum for Social Investment. So all of the social investment and social enterprise things <laughs> covered off, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. So I thought we'd better start off just with a bit of introduction to social investment for people that are uh, sort of less familiar with it. And then if we briefly cover that off, then we'll, we'll get into the detail a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's two sort of different angles to social investment. One is, um, you know, it's it's investment. So I guess the main difference from what we're used to in the charity sector is that it's expected to be paid back, sometimes with a bit more um, of interest. Um, and it differs, I guess, from mainstream investment in that it has a social purpose. So, um, you know, to give you an example, a social investment business, we're a charity we, our mission is to kind of reduce inequality and get a fairer society and use finance and support to do that. So we're, we're interested in using investment as a vehicle to do that so we can reuse it over and over again. Um, but we're, we're interested in the social impact of that investment as well. Um, but really it's very, you know, most social investment in our sector is, is lending, which lots of people are very familiar with from their mortgages if they're lucky <laughs> slash unlucky enough to have one. <laughs> And yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of the different types of kind of products that are out there now. But one of the things I wanted to hear from you was a little bit of context of how things have developed over time. I mean, I imagine social investment has existed in one form or another for a, a very long time. I know social investment business has been around for 20 years or so. But I know, I mean, I remember about 10 years or so ago, social investment being talked up a lot by government and policymakers um, and and at that time a fair amount of kind of money being put into promote you know sort of new organizations and um, promoting it as a, a and I suppose it being talked up quite a lot as kind of the it was going to save the charity sector's financial woes and, and all that sort of stuff and it feels like that that rhetoric kind of died away a bit over the last few years but there's still lots of activity lots of things going on so and that's all just from my perspective not really working in that part of the sector specifically so yeah it'd just be interesting to hear from you being in the midst of it what what your thoughts are on kind of how things have changed and developed over the last say 10-15 years or so and you're right to say it goes way back I mean I think you can mm. you can trace this sort of stuff back a bit to sort of depends how far you want to go you can certainly go back to cooperatives in 1840 i think one of my colleagues always yeah. refers back to medieval guilds as the start of social investment but anyway um more recently yeah we started in about 2002 and we um 
we started with something called the Adventure Capital Fund, which I think was very well named, um, which really lent money to organisations that the banks wouldn't really, often community-based organisations in um, in the in the most deprived areas of the UK. Um, I think there was us and maybe half a dozen others that were that were doing it in any sort of meaningful way at that point. Um, but you're right to say around sort of 2011, 2012, um, particularly around big society capital being launched. So they got mm. um, 400 million of dormant asset money and 200 million from the, the Merlin banks um, to kind of put, be a wholesaler really for the social investment market. So to put money through people like us out to charities and social enterprises. Um, and I think you're also right. I would kind of agree with your characterization of the, the slight hype and rhetoric spike there was around that period. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think many of us involved in it were were not behind the hype necessarily mm-hmm. and, yeah. and kind of, um, you know, but it was presented a little bit like a sort of silver bullet or a panacea or it was gonna solve everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're in a better place now where I think most organizations know that they've got to run a sustainable model. Their income can come from lots of sources um, and social investment is one of the tools that's out there that can hopefully help them either sustain their activities or grow them or, or thrive. And, and there's more providers now. So I think there's a fuller range of both products and amounts and, and the whole, um, the whole sort of landscape feels a bit more mature from our perspective than it certainly did 10 years ago and definitely 20 years ago. The statistics would tell you that the, there's more social investment happening. It's going out to more organizations. Um, yeah. I think, an important development was the Access Foundation, which is kind of big society capital sister organization. They got established and, and they were created with money that was a bit more flexible. And so they've been able particularly to do the right sorts of finance for smaller organizations in, in smaller deal sizes as well. And that's made a big difference, I okay. think. I think we still, though, have we, there's still room for improvement, inevitably, isn't there, everywhere? Mm. Um I think particularly as with other parts of the charitable sector, black and minority led organizations have often found it more difficult to access the finance or at the right stages. Um, I think sometimes the products or the way they're managed don't always match how organizations in our sector run and what they quite need as well. So I would say a sort of qualified qualified success in the in the growth of that and the maturity of that landscape but still with still with some things to address and improve upon to make it better still yeah and i saw recently you you guys are involved in a a new sort of fund aren't you that's targeted uh, black and minority-led organizations is it create equity so we we've got a loan fund called the recovery loan fund and um We've we've been successful to get money to get grant actually from Access, who I just mentioned, to put alongside yeah. that, um, and it's specifically for Black and minority-led organisations. And that's because, as I just described, they've been underinvested in historically. And this is really about putting grant alongside the loan to to get them up more to where their peers are. So really focusing on kind of getting an investment into them that's that's to use the terminology blended. So grant alongside loan um just to make it work because actually if we just went for loan with them they may not be able to access it they might not be as financially strong or might not have the track record and so on so we can put some support around them with working with the likes of create equity 
Um, we can find them also working with the likes of Create Equity who are more knowledgeable mm. and have better networks. And then we can put a just a better package of money together for them at the stage of what they're at. So yeah, that's one way we're trying to improve on our processes and our track record as well by working with partners and trying to make the money as, as flexible as it can be. Yeah. In terms of those sort of types of investment product, um, there's kind of more available now than there were a little while ago. Could you give us a, a, an overview of, of what those are? I think maybe it might be useful just to cover off some of the sort of main, the main product or the main sort of types of product um, rather than going through each and every one of them. So I think there's quite a few variations, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I might lose. Yeah, I'll lose people if I go if I go down a, a technical rabbit hole, probably. But um, I mean, I think you know the the standard yeah. one is 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 debt. So it's a loan. Um, I think most people are familiar with those. Generally, in our sector, that's either mm-hmm. like literally like a mortgage secured against a building, or it's or it's unsecured, so it's not secured against anything. Um, it's just for for cash flows or, or working capital or development capital, whatever it might be. Um, and those loan lengths can be, can vary, obviously, just, just like um, any loan can. Um, I think we tend to see equity as more your sort of dragon's den. Mm-hmm. I'll give you 50 grand for 10% of the company yeah. type of deal. We see less of that in the social sector just because most of the legal structures yeah. don't really have shares. Obviously, we're not generally shareholder owned. Um, um, but sometimes you you get products that are kind of developed to act a bit uh-huh. like equity. So that if you ever hear the term quasi equity, that is what that's referring to. Um, and sometimes you get deals that are more about um, they they change depending on how your profit is going, or sometimes how your social impact is going. So you can have effectively investment that's tied to your performance in one way or another as well. Um, the other the other major one I think we would look at is is increasingly we've seen some that are getting their investment from the crowd in one way or another. So that can be through different platforms um, or community share offers. So you see quite a few cooperatives raising money through community shares and genuinely sort of being owned, whether that's a wind turbine or a local newspaper, really using um, community shares as part of the way to do that as well. So a, a wide variety. I mean, I'm only touching on a few, but those are the kind of main the main types we see coming coming through um, in in terms of what we do, and how how do those work? The sort of community sort of crowdfunding uh, approaches because I've seen it done by charities fundraising and straightforward. It's a donation, and I've seen it done by companies as startups, and then it is equity. And you're getting a tiny tiny slice of the company. So how how does it work where it's neither of those things? So mostly it's a cooperative. So so normally it's a it's an independent industrial and provident society to get into my cooperative legal structures um, <laughs> or a benefit, a community benefit society. And they can actually give shares. So they're able to give shares. So you do literally own a share. Um, now, generally, people aren't looking for an enormous financial return from those investments, um, but it gives them a. So often it's giving them, it's as much about the ownership, i.e. they can go to an AGM and they are a shareholder of, you know, the wind turbine or the local newspaper or whatever it might be. Yeah. So presumably there are some voting rights, which are, which are more important than potential financial. Return. Yeah, often. And, um, uh, but it, but it's a different way also of raising money. 
you know, all the other products I, I mentioned tend to come through an intermediary like yeah. us or some sort of fund or manager or bank. Um, and this is a way of going direct to your community, which, which for a lot of charities and social enterprises, obviously they're often rooted in that yeah. community. So it makes a lot of sense just as fundraising from that community makes sense as well. So sometimes there's other ones where you can, you can raise money and they're sort of collectively pooling it into a particular product. But so there's different ways of approaching it, but we've started to see that, that, that methodology grow, particularly in the last five to 10 years, yeah. really. Okay. Are there particular platforms for those sort of crowdfunding um, projects? Three spring to mind. So there's FX, E-T-H-E-X, okay. um, which is an ethical exchange, as the name would suggest. So like, that's a platform where there's lots of different offers from all over the country. Um, you have Triados have their own crowdfunding okay. platform, which is doing more sort of charitable bonds. So quite yeah. big charities yeah. raising money on there from, and they're less less about a specific geographical community, but more about raising money from as wide a group as possible. And then the community shares unit um, and the community shares booster program, which is sort of allied to Cooperatives UK. They they obviously drive a lot of the community shares work um, and support a lot of those community share offers as well. So those would be the the three that spring to mind with a particular social motivation. Yeah, uh, cool. I'll have to check those out. I've not not, um, not kind of explored that before. I should say, like, I, sh I feel like I should say something like money money at risk, you know. <laughs> this is just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, this is not this disclaimer, financial later. advice. You can do the voiceover <laughs> later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is... It, mm. This is yeah. Absolutely. This is definitely not how to get rich quick, <laughs> uh, or at all, most probably. <laughs> um, but potentially uh, somewhere that you can invest for a, a good social return, and uh, in some cases, a modest financial return. Um, and there, there have been some, if a pretty small number, I guess, of sort of products that have um, gone onto the public markets. In terms, probably not lots of them. I don't know if that's is that because it's like the difficulty of doing it or is it just not really like, has it not taken off or is that just me not seeing them it's partly um the difficulty i mean i think it's also partly because with a, a, with a lot of social investment they're very patient and they're very people uh centered and so you tend there tends to not always be in an, a clear exit in the same way that there is with some of those companies so it doesn't always um which doesn't doesn't always fit with the ethos maybe of a stock exchange. So you do see things like retail charity bonds now going on the market, and also big society capital have developed their own um, trust uh, with Schroders, which is they've done together, which has a sort of hundred million that they've raised. I thought maybe it's about ninety million at the moment they've raised from the public markets, and again that flows through into other social investors. So you're starting to see different vehicles emerge over time. Um, but yeah, often it's not always the right sort of money or with the right sort of um, time horizons, I guess, for for some of the work we're doing. Be interesting, but for a long time, you know, if you did have any money to save, you haven't really been able to earn much money on it. So actually, you might as well have had. My dream was always you could, you know, why not have a social and ethical ISA that you could pop your money into that's funding these sorts of projects? Because actually, the return they can give you is probably not far off what you're getting from from your standard products anyway so i think we'll see much more of that you know whether it's your pension savings investments and other routes to to market that start to include these social and ethical and environmental options hopefully 
Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, in terms of public markets, there's been a, a real sort of boom in the ESG product, hasn't there? But they're not quite the same thing. But so it'd be it'd be nice to see more of the kind of uh, the products that have more of a social return um, kind of taken a place, because um, obviously that's where the sort of big the big money, the big investment would be, wouldn't it? If it was in in that kind of space. Absolutely, and I think you know we're constantly thinking of different ways like you say we want to get that money flowing down to the real what we think of a sort of real deep social impact that we're having with the projects we support but some of the stuff a bit along the spectrum calling itself ESG or in some cases calling itself impact investment is not always uh, what we would hope for I think in in terms of the sort of integrity it has and the intentionality it has and how it reports against that as well so I think that's a very emerging field. And I think, again, we'll see more coming through of like people being held to account for that, people being scrutinized for that. You're already starting to see that much more. And I think that will only increase and standards will, will start to get emerged. Hi, please excuse this brief interruption. I'd love for more people in our sector to hear from our guests. So I'd like to ask a favor of you, please. If you're enjoying the podcast, please could you promote the show in whatever way suits you? This could be giving us a rating and following us on your podcast player or following us and sharing posts on social media or telling your contacts about us by email. Any of those would be a great help and greatly appreciated. And most importantly, thank you for listening. Okay, so we've talked about the types of products available a bit and it'd be great to get an idea of what your sort of portfolio looks like. So like, is it? pretty much all social enterprises or is it charities and other types and what are some of the investment needs that are being met what are some of the kind of projects that are being enabled or or is it not necessarily projects but kind of cash flow and things like that it'd be great to hear some examples of that and and just to get a bit of a sense of you know what what organizations can do with social investment no great and um it's, it's a real mix is the honest answer, Alex, in terms of um, the mix of organizations. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, a wide range of charities as well as social enterprises. Um, and the mix of what they use it for is, 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 is there as well. So some are definitely using it to invest to grow either in more people or in a new system or in new branches of their organization. Um, there are, People who are using it, as you say, to sort of, if you like, manage the cash flow of different contracts where they know they're going to get paid, but they're not getting paid yet. Um, so bridging loans, different ways to manage the, the money better. Um, and some obviously seeking to buy buildings or assets of different types or vans or whatever that whatever it might be. So quite a wide range of, of stuff. I mean, some of the things we did in COVID, we particularly did a lot of those kind of effectively emergency sort of bridging loans which were helping people through until they could um well until they could open <laughs> again actually so so we had museums and theaters and community leisure centers which are now under pressure for a different reason um you know coming to us for for loans that helped them get through a period until they could um open up and, and really start to earn and trade again um, you know, similarly, we we recently lent money to um, an air ambulance, um, which is kind of completely refurbishing its headquarters um, and wanting to do that and build that for the future. Um, 
And then a different one, I mean, one we're, we're seeing next week, actually, one called Change Please, which is a social enterprise that um, uses coffee as the route to reducing homelessness, which probably isn't in, um, the first idea that you might come up with, but basically they train people up as baristas, wrap housing and support around them, get them into work, and, um, and then sell coffee and also create, um, sell that coffee inside companies as well and inside gyms and so on. And we, they had opportunities to buy some retail outlets during COVID, so they were quite ambitious and, and aggressive in wanting to scale their operations, and we, we lent them some money for that as well. So um, a really wide range across mental health, physical health, housing, homelessness, um, environmental education, training, all the, you know, the full range of the sector really we see coming through our doors. And, um, and yeah, we see it as our job just to kind of try and provide what one of my peers calls the sort of right, the right money at the right time. <laughs> um, and if we can get that right, then hopefully it helps them fly and do what they're best placed to do as well. And are there, are there common features of the sort of investable organizations for example is it the you know are they nearly always having trading income as part of their income mix um or, or contracts so you know if it if it's a sort of local community charity that completely relies on fundraising from like events and donations and maybe some grant funding and stuff i suppose for for those types of organizations there's obviously a question around like how would you repay um, that kind of loan so are, are there typical kind of features of what your what your sort of investees look like yeah absolutely like the reality is that if they've, they've got to pay the money back so they've you know they really need to they need to be at least have a proportion a decent proportion of their income that's usually trading in one way or another i mean sometimes a charity even a local community will might own a building that it's planning to sell off or do you know what i mean yeah. so there are sometimes there are other options to getting it but generally yes if you've got to pay back the money you've got to earn it from somewhere and you've got to be confident that if you're you know, borrowing a hundred thousand to employ two, three new members of your team, that they will deliver at least that back over yeah. time to pay it back. Um, but as you know, across the sector, there's such a wide array of business models. So some are in public service delivery, some are you know, running retail and, and are open to the general public. Others are working with central government, with, with, with corporates and businesses. So it varies wildly in terms of what we see i think the other bits we tend to look for are strength of the team um both internally but also on the board mm -hmm. um, so we don't expect everyone to have done investment before obviously but you know can they manage this and perhaps we can have some confidence that the numbers are, are going to be there and it stacks up um and also just an understanding of their context and the market they operate in i think again no one's asking anyone to sort of realistically do five-year cash flow predictions out into the current environment because no one has an idea what's happening five months from now probably never mind five five years but do they understand their market quite well are they well placed to to win new business to have repeat business with their current customers do they understand how their world's evolving as well we're never going to be the specialists in I know, social care or um you know recycling uh, or refurbishing furniture or whatever it might be but but we sort of have some expectation that they understand their world quite well and and that gives us confidence again to invest that even though lots of things will happen you know they can navigate through it and have got the the right people and the right um information and knowledge really to to do that yeah and presumably although there's a lot of uncertainty 
they need to have a, the business plan in place with projections that are based on a, a strong rationale and all of those kind of things. Um, yeah, we see the occasional um, the occasional set of projections that are based less on reality. Um, and look, we're all optimistic about our organisations, I think. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think, yeah, it's our job to kind of go, you know, really just test that a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. We want we want some sort of sense that they know where they're going. We're, we're, we're not expecting everyone to have every single thing nailed down because that's just not realistic. But yeah, a decent plan, a decent sense of the structure and the team. And, and a, you know, a sense from our perspective of the viability that the money is going to come back. Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head, how's, how does it compare the sort of number of social investments that fail? You know, they don't, they're not able to pay mm. it back compared to commercial loans or, you know, kind of business loans, whatever the sort of comparable would be. Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is it will depend really widely on the type of funds. So, for example, like mortgages will carry much less risk because you know yeah. if someone or an organization can't pay you can just sell the building yeah i suppose is is there a comparable you can do just in terms of the sort of maybe the sort of debt area you know just kind of commercial loans that are not maybe unsecured loans i think we perform pretty well i mean um you know so on one of our old historical funds future builders which was 150 million pounds um it was 125 million loan and 25 million grant, so similar to what we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, well over 100 million of that has already paid back to government. Um, the sort of write-off rate, which is sort of what you're getting at, is okay. How do you remember the right terminology? Then, no, as the no, question came to me, <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not a, an investment and person by background, but um, you know, it's around 15, 15 percent on that fund, yeah. which was kind of within. The, the original KPI we were set by government way back when was 25%. So um, we're performing quite above that. And I think then it then it depends fund by fund a bit if we're deliberate, because sometimes we'll be deliberately taking quite a lot of risk. Mm. Um, and almost almost it would be wrong if we weren't, yeah, <laughs> if we yeah. had fewer write-offs, yeah. do you know what I mean? Our, yeah. our appetite might not be wrong. I think the thing for us, it, more than just writing off the investment is is are we strengthening the organization that the money's going to? So I think what we don't want to ever be doing is putting the organization itself at risk. Yeah. So I think there's one thing which is sort of us, writing, us or other investors writing off their investments. That's kind of like, we'll take the hit. You know, we're, hopefully we've modeled for that or allowed for it or saw it coming. Um, what we don't, what we never want to be doing is sort of putting the organization itself at risk um, from any investment as well. So, and we've got a good, a good record of that um, in terms of how we've, we've done so far. Um, yeah. And what's the what's the sort of process for organisations that are maybe more familiar with applying for grant funding, where you you submit an application and in most cases they kind of say either yes, here's the money, or no, <laughs> full stop. Like, is it is it like that, or is it much more of a kind of uh, relational approach where you 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 know look at the business plan and things, and then you go back to them and say, you know are these figures really realistic and, you know, start to understand a bit more about the rationale? Yeah, I should say first that we do we do, do grant management as well. So hopefully our feedback is a bit better than no, no but, um, <laughs> if you haven't got it. But um, no, I think, I mean, there are aspects that are very similar, right? So the amount of money you want, the organisation name, your mission, your purpose, your impact, lots of yeah. stuff that you would expect to fill in in, in, a, in a grant application. Um, 
I think there is a bit more back and forth, which is usually about the information, just additional information we might require. Um, and then instead of a, a sort of grants committee meeting, we obviously have an investment committee. They will meet usually every month or every quarter, depending on the fund. And so there's a bit more of a relationship where a single person will kind of get into the depths of of the proposal and and recommend that to the investment committee, if you like, um, and then get asked questions by that committee about it. Um, and sometimes the organisation itself comes comes to those as well. Um, but uh, it's not dissimilar. I mean, I think it is definitely. You're right. It's a bit more relational. It's a bit more involved. I think what we're trying to do is try and make it as clear and as rapid as well as responsive as some of the best grant making can be as well because I think the worst again the worst thing for organizations particularly in the environment we're in and have been in is waiting around almost a quick no is almost mm -hmm. you know better better than a long yeah. drawn out maybe and I think so we tried very hard particularly during COVID to turn around you know sort of from application to money hitting the account almost within a month um, now we don't always hit that and sometimes that's on the organization as well to get us information but but trying to think about how we can be as responsive as we can in that process is is important to us and also proportionate so equally if you're doing a a five thousand pound grant in our opinion you shouldn't be asking for the same amount of information as if you're doing a hundred thousand pound loan um, and if you are then something's a bit wrong yeah, I think uh, I think there are a few funders out there that need to hear that message a few more times. <laughs> yeah. I could I could not possibly comment, Alex, but um, uh, but yeah, no, it is frustrating. I mean, sometimes we've been asked to do as much monitoring for a five thousand pound grant as for a one and a half million pound loan, and that that doesn't feel right. Even you know, both for public money in a sense, but. Um, but actually, yeah, we, we've got to get that right. So we try and do our, our best on that. And we don't ask, um, we don't ask any of our investees to create more impact stuff either. Because I think, again, there's, if you end up with three or four different funds and investors, and they're all asking for different stuff on impacts, you know, you're putting this burden on organizations to, to do things. We just say, look, if you've got stuff, let's have a look at it. Um, you know, give us what you've got already. And if there's, we might have feedback on it, we might have thoughts on it, but we're not going to ask you to sort of jump through a whole load more additional hoops for us or specific questions for us as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, an interesting sort of challenge, isn't it, across both social investment and sort of grant funding and philanthropy. And it, I think, I think what it boils down to is who is expected to kind of do the legwork in analysing the information. And I think the uh, traditionally often the approach has been to say to the applicant or the grantee or or in your case, the kind of investee, you know, you work out how to present this data to all these different kind of organisations with these different requirements, whereas actually it could be the other way around in that that, that organisation presents one set of data. And then if as a funder, you know, you have different requirements, then you need to kind of pick it apart and put it into your, your boxes and things like that. And there's the same on the sort of um, application side of it as well. Um, which hopefully we're starting to see some of that shift. I think so. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we've all got sort of one application form or anything like that. And, and sometimes there's good reason for some of the questions we ask, you know, we're, yeah. we're running, we're running a big uh, grant fund for government called the Youth Investment Fund at the moment. Now that is 
incredibly complicated. Some of the grants can be as much as 10 million pounds. There's buildings involved, there's long leases. There's quite a lot of complexity, you know, um, and there's good reason why some of what we're asking is really detailed and in depth and you have lots of attachments. Um, but equally in other cases, you know, uh, we should just be doing stuff much more quickly, much more smoothly, much more streamlined and and really only collecting the information that we're actually going to use. I think mm -hmm. that's the, the critical bit for us. If no one at our place is actually going to use it to assess or to report or to monitor or to inform our work, then really why are we collecting it? Um, so I think it's just it's that sense of you've got to have a rationale behind why you're why you're collecting it and what you're going to do with it, because um, otherwise the, there's no need. Yeah, and I think you've you've mentioned before about using data to improve the way you work and improve transparency and things. Can you tell us a bit about the work you've been doing there around how you use data? Yeah, sure. I mean, I arrived in 2018 and, and we'd had this long track record. So I was like, oh, we must have amazing data um, on everything we've done over that time. And um, we did not have amazing data, I think it's fair to say. So um, we you know, it was sort of either buried literally in garages, in boxes, or it was buried electronically in archives mm -hmm. as PDFs. Um, and so the team, under, particularly under my deputy, Jen Maitland-Hudson, worked incredibly hard to get all that information together to be able to analyze it, both so looking back, first of all, um, and really understanding and looking at all the accounts of all the organizations we'd invested in. Again, to your point, the burden on us to do mm -hmm. the analysis. Um, and now starting to really be able to use that information in a live way on our new funds and programs and initiatives. Um, we're also really keen on reporting that transparently. So um, on our funds, we tend to have live dashboards and people can see who's applying, what's applying, what's in the pipeline, um, how much is flowing through, what geographical areas they are. Um, again, because I think just a lot of our world tended to be a bit behind the scenes and was a bit sort of, um, mysterious and it really isn't that mysterious it's it's fine um and i think we're we're quite passionate about sharing that information in the sense that we think it helps all of us it helps the investee who might be interested in our funds it helps other other funds in our landscape know what's going on um and it helps us get better often if we can spot you know which groups are we not managing to reach or that proportion of applicants are coming in but none of them are progressing towards a investment committee why is that so using that data, we can start to get better ourselves as well. And we've been, yeah, I think doing that more successfully over the last two or three years, particularly. Yeah, and you mentioned about the kind of gap in particularly black and minority-led organisations mm. accessing funding. Um, and yeah. So I know, for example, with that, where you've, you've found from the data that that's an issue, then um, I think you mentioned working, it's usually working in partnership um, with organisations that are already in that space. Um, what, what are some of the sort of things that you've done with those partners that are, you know, trying to kind of address that issue? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, so on the, on the, we did a guarantee backed fund in COVID um, and that was very successful on one level, sort of 80 organisations, 30 million out the door. I don't know, one analysis said sort of 10,000 jobs secured, which was great. Um, but one thing we did notice was that although about 12% of the, sorry, about 24% of the applicants were black and minority led, only 12% of those were eligible. 
and then only about 4% actually made it to investment committee. Now, all that did make it to investment committee got approved, but we were like, well, that's not proportionate either to the population or to the number of organizations. So in its successor fund, which is the one we're running now, we lowered the threshold for turnover. So allowing for those smaller organizations to Mm -hmm. apply. Um, And then we put in some of the support I, I mentioned earlier with working with the Ubele initiative and with Create Equity um, and being able to put grant alongside loan so that we can get more of those organizations in, make the money more accessible to them and make it fit where they're at in their journey. And that's meant at the moment on that fund after about 25 investments, you know, over 20% of that fund is now black and minority led. So yeah, using the data, which didn't look good. We reported it transparently. You can see it in lots of reports. Um, but then doing something with it, translating it into a new a new way of doing it. And hopefully so far, I mean, it's early days. I'm not over-promising, but things are looking better in terms of how we do that. And like you said, it's a mix of design, decision-making, and also the partners we, we work with as well. Sure. And what are some of the sort of specifics in terms of the support that people are needing, that organisations are needing? Is it around the sort of financial modelling and business planning? Is it, you know, do you... Uh, is the grant funding for them to pay someone to come in and do some of that or is that something you do with them? It's a bit of a mix. I mean, but you're definitely right. I mean, I think the things we tend to see is some often about financial management and financial information. It isn't that they don't have the capabilities, but often that they just don't have the capacity. So they just haven't got the time or someone to help them to get it into the right shape. Um, Sometimes it's about governance, so it might be about strengthening their board. And um, and again, earlier stage organisations, inevitably their governance, their board, their non-execs, the support they have is often less well-established. Um, it's and, and sometimes it's about their business model a bit more broadly. Um, usually they have a keen sense of, of their work and what they do and the impact they're having in the community they're operating in. Like, I don't think we add much to that. And... and so we've worked where, both with partners like the ones I mentioned. They they can provide support directly. We we have business support budgets as well, so sometimes we do that. Um, and then we also run other funds like the Reach Fund for Access, which can organisations can get a grant to pay for business support to help them get over the line towards an investment as well. So there's different right. different options out there, but um, those are the sorts of things we we see. Um, in terms of what's needed, you know, either either more the kind of market assessment side of it, the financial side of it, or the governance side of it, I'd say are the sort of top three that we're we we're often providing support about. And that's not that's not just black and minority-led organizations. I'd say that that that's across the board actually in terms of um where where we provide support, but also some of the challenges we see in in the portfolio that we run. Yeah, I was thinking it's a lot of that sounds like small small and particularly younger organization issues rather than necessarily any particular sort of demographic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a function that they've often, in in, the, in this case, they've often been under-invested in and they're just at yeah. an earlier stage than where they would be otherwise. Um, but yeah, those are the, and you know, and often it comes back to governance, like a lot of the, when we see problems in organizations, and these can be very mature organizations as well, mm. often governance and is, is is at the root of it when we, when we get into it. But um, yeah, that's some of the stuff we we're trying to provide support alongside the finance, really, and recognizing the money alone is not gonna not gonna solve everything. Um, so I know from your work at Social Enterprise UK previously, and now on the board of Social Value UK, you've 
been involved in that work in getting the Social Value Act and then have been involved, you, you have that kind of familiarity with it. I'd, I'd be keen to know sort of what's happening with that because I've not heard so much about it recently, but I know it's uh, something that was kind of billed mm. as potentially having a big impact for the social sector. Um, so it'd be, be great to kind of get a bit of an update on, on that and, and how charities and social enterprises are benefiting from it, if they are, to what extent they are and, and what they could be doing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things that, you know, um, you know, it was always going to take some time. Um, I sort of vi vividly remember being at Social Enterprise UK in 2012. And the, the act had just come into law. And um, I took a call two weeks later from a member who said kind of like, <laughs> it hasn't changed anything. <laughs> and I was like, well, it might take a little bit more time. Um, and but seriously i think it does take time like is it so it's a cultural shift for some of the people in commissioning and procurement it's kind of like you have to literally wait for tenders to come up otherwise you can't change them um so it was always going to take time i think um it hasn't it, it was never going to be a, a revolution if you like but i think it has been a, a positive evolution of what's been happening um and we've seen particularly in some local authorities and combined authorities more forward-thinking practice so like putting bigger weightings on social value, really thinking about how it relates to their objectives, holding people to account for it in, in, in some cases. Um, I think the challenge we've seen is to some extent, you know, a good thing, if you like, which is it's pushing that agenda within other companies, particularly those who deliver public services. But often those companies are much bigger than the social enterprise and charity. So they might have a, you know, a social value yeah. unit in their bidding team, for example, or whatever it might be. Um, the the other side of that is I think because of the you know the the situation of public finances really like a, a lot of councils and local authorities and commissioning bodies have have had to reduce their teams so much of the sort of outward engagement understanding what's there locally in the supply chain potentially what charities and social enterprises mm -hmm. do has gone away a bit and that's led to more sort of kind of big yeah. aggregation of contracts and tenders and less understanding of that kind of local market. So I think we've been pushing both for kind of stronger weighting, stronger accountability, like hold people to account, don't just read the bid and go, oh, they're best, but actually do they deliver on what they said? Um, but also this sense of like, can you push some of this stuff through supply chains? Can you, can you parcel it up so it is more suitable for charities and social enterprises, which was obviously the ethos of, of the act when it came in. I think there is, there are some, there's, there's good and bad signs, really. Like I think there, are, you know, we've seen um, ongoing commitment to to the act from lots of different local authorities. I think centrally, it's kind of ebbed and flowed a bit, um, but there has been progress. I mean, it, it's not always visible from the outside, but places like the Crown Commercial Service, um, you know, other kind of the the bodies that sort of lead a lot of government procurement are really taking this stuff seriously now, and um, and I'm I'm hopeful we can see more of that in the in the next few years as some of the stronger legislation and guidance comes comes in really yeah i've seen the um sort of social value framework uh, you know for how how that section is assessed on tenders and it's pretty dense <laughs> it's, uh, and i suppose uh, my experience because uh, sometimes i help um, charities to put together tenders and it it always feels like that should be an area where we should be able to score really highly, relatively easily. Um, and that's, that's what 10% of the overall score now. So it's not to be sniffed at. Um, 
but often as you say you know big corporates will have like a social value unit and they'll have lots of evidence and ready-made answers for each of those different kind of indicators that are on that framework and when i've worked with charities on on tenders they're really starting from scratch and you know have have no familiarity with this kind of social value act and the framework and and those sorts of things so uh, yeah it feels like it's uh it's more of a kind of a challenge than an opportunity when when bidding for things yeah i mean i think it's you know it should be um and i think it is in some places i mean there are some councils that are doing 30 40 percent weighting and um and where you're seeing that sort of genuine substantial commitment to it um you know i I think it's never going to be perfect because we've been in this situation of of I think you do need capacity for the sort of pre-engagement of the market, if you like. That's where the, you know, the local authority or the commissioner understands what is out there actually and what and what they're what they can get. Um, and there just hasn't been enough of that, there hasn't been enough capacity or time for that really. Um, and so it's it's been difficult, but I I think I, you know, the fundamental principle of like we should get the maximum value in the round out of our public spending, I think is. I think that case is pretty well made now. I think we are into the sort of the, the gnarly bits of implementation and how we do it really well. Um, and sometimes, I mean, and you know, we don't always want to hear this, but sometimes actually we're not very good at that stuff, like in the charitable and social enterprise sector, and we should be best at it. It's not to say, it's not to say we deserve always to lose to um to to some large uh, faceless corporation but but actually sometimes it is a challenge for us to get better on that stuff if we can't articulate our social value in a way that aligns with that local authority's objectives then maybe we should be able to at times but i think i think mostly for me it's just about we can we can do things within the guidance within the, the structure of the legislation that i think will make it work better for the smaller largely smaller organizations in the social sector that that should benefit as you say from from the act originally yeah and i guess the other the other way of it the benefit is where it's it's not a charity or social enterprise bidding for the contract but that there should be a way that they can benefit from that social value element of the contract so yeah um you know absolutely it's a corporate entity bidding to deliver a, a public service big huge contract you know multiple millions and that they have to demonstrate that social value but i don't have you seen interesting examples of where that's worked well in that you know a, a corporate's going to partner with a charity in the local community to deliver x y and z benefits or yeah i don't know have you have you seen yeah no d- definitely i mean yeah, no, I mean, I remember, I remember while I was at Social Enterprise UK, you know, talking to, and it's not, I mean, it's not an uncontroversial project, but um, mm. talking to HS2, like, so there was no social enterprise and charity, to the mm. best of my knowledge, Alex, you may know better, that was going to deliver yeah. large parts of HS2 in terms of the infrastructure and the the, the building and, and the construction. Um, but clearly, it was going through a load of local communities it was going to affect them in different ways there were huge there were also huge opportunities for employment um for apprenticeships for training for education for relationships to schools etc etc so yeah we did quite a lot with them to try and and i i'll be honest and say i don't exactly know where it's got to since i left but um a lot of work with them on trying to think about how do they engage with different Mm -hmm. communities along the line 
Um, how do they do that in the bigger cities that are doing that? What's their approach on that? Um, how does it relate to their overall objectives, but also to what the community needs are? Um, and try and construct for them really a sensible social value policy that meant it was embedded in, in everything they were trying to do. Um, and try and, yeah, use that part of that money at least to support the communities that it was going to affect or impact sometimes positively but often often mm. not always positively as well um so th so we've seen ones like that and and then there are others like my my chair um hazel blair's um uh works works with the nuclear decommissioning authority up in cumbria and you know they they also have you know obviously a profound impact and link to their local community and she's working really hard with them on how to do how to embed social value within their process of that kind of work of the decommissioning authority as well. So you do see these big major projects. I remember also, you know, L London 2012 and subsequent Commonwealth Games and other major sporting ones, you know, the transport to the games was provided by two social enterprises. There was, you know, so all those sort of supply chains of big projects, I think, do provide real opportunities where clearly a social enterprise or charity at the moment, at least, isn't going to deliver the whole thing. Um, but they can deliver parts of it and that can be part of the motivation and still now if you go to the olympic site um the copper box i think it's the copper box um and the swimming pool are still run by a social enterprise you know bike works social enterprise still use their you know uh use that as the foundation for their cycling work and so on so i think for me there are really good examples and, and we just need to find more of those and, and weave those in and um, and persuade more big companies that's the right thing to do as well. Yeah, is, is there, are there things that smaller charities and social enterprises can do to kind of get in the right position to benefit from those things? Or, or do you think it, it really needs to be driven by the commissioners and the companies that are tendering for things? Um, I think I think it never hurts to try and find a, a way in to engage with the, the right people, if you can identify the right people within the company. Um, I think also, you know, people like Social Enterprise UK or Social Value UK sometimes can be useful routes to that. So Social Enterprise UK run a thing called the Buy Social Corporate Challenge, which is about spending, corporate spending with social enterprises in their supply chain, basically. So again, get listed on that, get your stuff mm -hmm. together, get ready, and they can help you potentially find some opportunities. So there's different routes out there, but I think, yeah, where it's local commissioning, it's much more about the direct engagement, I think, and... Um, uh, but but for these big opportunities, it's probably yeah get, getting getting to some of the intermediaries who are working with those companies, I would say, and, and trying to trying to open up the opportunities that are there. Um, but I think I do think it's a it's a big area kind of ripe for more work, um, and and it does relate to us on the investment side because you know if we want social organisations to grow, to deliver more, to have good impact, be great employers, etc. You know, well, actually, they need to win business. And one big bit of business, because it's often aligned, is public services. Um, and so that, that's why the commissioning, social value, all of that is of real interest to us, because actually a lot of the organisations we support and invest in are working, you know, they're working in that field and working with different parts of government as well. So um, the two the two relate really closely from our perspective. Great. If the organisations thinking about social investment and wanting to learn more and think about getting ready to apply for funding potentially what what would you point them towards as being useful sort of resources or websites or organizations what will be the main ones we can we can put the links up on the web page 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, aside from ours, obviously, so um, uh, we're at sibgroup.org.uk. Um, I think the main one probably which pulls together a lot of collective information is Good Finance. So goodfinance.org.uk. And they, they've got a range of resources. You can, you can literally put in the amount of money you're looking for, where you are, and a bunch of providers will come up. They've got resources, they've got videos, they've got case studies, a lot of peer-to-peer -peer stuff. So that's probably, that. I think that would be probably where I would recommend it. It's a really good first port of call, even if you're just kind of like, I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff or I want to speak to my board about this stuff because we've never done it before. Um, if you're sort of making your first steps or if you're at the stage where you're like, actually we need 50, 250, 550 grand to, for this investment, who do I, who can I go to to ask for that? Um, so I think that would probably be my my first uh, first suggestion, really. And they and they work really collaboratively with all of the other social investors um, in the in the landscape, really. Okay, cool. And final question then: just is there anything anything particularly that you want to share with the audience or uh, ask of listeners? Ah. Uh... I don't think so particularly I mean we've got funds that are open so I guess if 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 any of this is of interest to your organization or you just want to speak to one of our team then go ahead um I think you know keep an eye on on what's coming out um we've got a lot from the youth investment fund from the recovery loan fund from the reach fund from lots of other funds um but I think the main message from my perspective would be to to pick what's right for you to really think it through um, and just to consider it as one of the other ways you can use to help maximize and grow the impact of your organization. It's not right for everyone. It's not right for everyone at this stage of wherever they're at, but I think it can be part of the answer for lots of organizations, um, depending on how they use it. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, it's been really interesting to get a bit of an update on the social investment and space. As I said, I'll put all of the sort of resources and links um, and notes up on the web page. We'll get that shared out with everyone. So thanks, Nick. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much, Alex. Thank you for listening to the Charity Impact Podcast. Please give us a rating and follow us on your podcast player or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. And if you think this episode would be of interest to someone in your network, please do share the webpage on social media or by email.